I'm Cal Newport, and this is a Deep Questions Habit Tune-Up mini-episode. The format of these mini-episodes should be known to you by now. I take voice questions from my listeners where we try to dive into some of the nitty-gritty details involved in tuning up their productivity habits. Looking at my question list today, we have some questions about auto-scheduling meetings. So how do you time block if other people can auto-schedule meetings on your calendar? We talk about my advice to hire yourself as your own assistant, how to deal with really short tasks. We do a little bit of digital minimalism here. There's someone with a cell phone habit and a teacher who's worried about losing their deep work muscles over the summer break. So this should be good. If you want to submit your own questions, you can go to calnewport.com slash podcast. There you can learn about submitting the voice questions for the mini episodes and the written questions for the main episodes. All right, so without further ado, I want to get started with this week's episode. But first, as always, we should take a moment to say thanks to some of the sponsors that make deep questions possible. One of our longest running sponsors, and for good reason, is Blinkist. As I talked about in Monday's episode, Blinkist is a subscription service. It gives you access to thousands of summaries of best-selling nonfiction books. In just 15 minutes, you can get up to speed on the main ideas in thousands of different books. This is a great way to very quickly learn the big ideas, big characters, big concepts in a topic that interests you. It also helps to identify which books are actually worth investing in buying and reading in depth. Something I didn't realize till recently is that Blinkist has over 12 million members, so you know they're doing something right. So for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. If you go to Blinkist.com slash deep, you can try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash deep to start your free seven-day trial. You'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash deep. And of course, to feed your mind, you must also feed your body. And what better way to do that than the Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars? So these are granola bars that have just one gram of sugar, two grams of net carbs, and are only 140 calories. They were originally invented for people on a keto diet, but anyone can benefit from this low sugar treat that tastes good but will not spike your blood sugar. I've had them. They are great. They have that soft, chewy texture. They have great flavors like coconut chocolate chip. I tried that one. I like that flavor. I have not yet tried blueberry almond vanilla. I just saw they have a flavor called blueberry almond vanilla. That one I'm looking forward to trying. These are good flavors. It doesn't feel like it's health food, but it gives you good, lasting, sustainable energy. So you should try it for yourself, and you will see that they do the same for you. To help motivate you, we have a special deal for our listeners. You can get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code DEEP at checkout. 
Monkpack is so confident in their product that you have a 100% satisfaction guaranteed, so you don't have to worry. So just get started by going to monkpack.com. That's M U N K P A C K.com. Select any product and then enter the code DEEP at checkout to save 24% off your purchase. All right, let's get started with this week's episode. Our first question is about tasks that are so short that it's not even worth writing them down in your to-do list. Hi, Cal. This is Tyler. I am an assistant professor at an R1 university in the U.S. My question for you is about managing Trello boards. What I do right now is if I get an incoming task on my email, I will forward it to my Trello board, which will automatically create a card. However, some tasks that I face seem to be so short that even the amount of time it would take to make a Trello card out of it would be longer than the task itself takes. Yet, I don't want to necessarily do those tasks the moment that I receive them, so there is going to be some residue in my inbox for these very short tasks like uploading something to some website or something. So I was wondering uh, if you had any guidance about how to manage tasks that take such a short time to complete that they don't really warrant their own Trello board. Well, first of all, I should probably clarify what Tyler means when he says he's at an R1 university. This terminology comes up semi-frequently on the podcast. I realize I don't know if I've ever defined it. Roughly speaking, what that means is he's at a uh, research university. If you're at an R1 university, uh, you have expectations of producing a lot of original research. So the, the actual details of what this Carnegie classification actually means is not so important. It's just a shorthand for our purposes of uh, this is a research-focused professor. So Tyler, getting to your specific question, I think there's two different modes in which you interact with your inbox. So the first mode is a quick check. You're waiting for a piece of information. You're in the middle of a particular back and forth asynchronous conversation that you need to ping pong forward, like choosing a time to meet or trying to wait for someone to send you a Zoom link for a meeting that you're supposed to be in. When you're doing these quick checks of your inbox, you can basically ignore all the other messages. I don't want you to feel as if anytime you open an inbox, everything in it has to be processed into some sort of 2007 era Merlin man inbox zero standard or something like that. Now, of course, the existence of these quick checks is in itself an issue. This is a big part of my new book, A World Without Email. It's coming out March 2nd, as you've heard me talk about many times before, is trying to actually update the underlying processes by which you coordinate and collaborate so that you don't need to keep checking your inbox and, and advancing collaboration through these asynchronous back and forth messages. But let's put that aside for now. If you have quick checks, you can ignore what else is in your inbox. The other mode with which you interact with your inbox is one in which you are actually trying to process your inbox. You have scheduled time on your time block planner and it's for email. You need at least a half hour if you're going to do this. It tends to be my recommendation. That's the minimum, the minimum amount of time that you can actually get serious inbox processing done. And there you really are trying to process your inbox towards zero. 
what I do in this case is as I hit upon emails that have an obligation that's short, but just long enough that I don't want to do it right then, I keep a text file open on my computer. It's literally called workingmemory.txt. All of my computers have this. Sometimes I abbreviate it WM. And I just keep it open. It's like an extension of my actual working memory in my brain. As I look at that email, I just type in there as fast as I can type what the obligation is that's represented by that email. You know, I can type really fast, right? So I just throw in, I'm not trying to be specially formatted. I'm not in to-do list software. It'll just be, uh, use a recent example, uh, export recent podcast interview to MP4, upload, get a Dropbox link, send it to Jay. Something I just did. Archive the email. All right, next email. So in this way, you really can clear through all your emails pretty fast. Like you're either throwing it out, responding right away, doing an action right away, or writing a quick summary of the action in your working memory.txt. Now, some of these things you're writing in working memory.txt might be really big tasks. Like I need to uh, finish this report and send it to Bob. And some are really short. I don't really differentiate here. But you can get through that whole inbox. Now you have these tasks that you need to do that were the uh, side effect, the qualia, if you will, of those emails that you were processing. They're all in this text file. They, they all are very clear. Now you can process the text file. Big things you can't do now, go to your Trello boards or whatever you use for your long-term task management, give them cards, give them items and to-do list. Now you have the short things. I'll copy and paste and put them into the right order I want to do them. And then I'll start going through them. If I run out of time, it's fine. The rest are right there in my digital extended working memory. I don't have to remember them. When I get back to my next admin block during the day, I will see them right there in my working memory list. I use this same text file for everything throughout the day. Copy and pasting notes, writing down ideas. I'm in a meeting. I'm putting down a note I want to talk about. I use the same text file for almost everything. It's really, really useful. And I just want to make sure that by the end of the day, though, everything in there has been processed out. So it's part of my shutdown complete ritual, my shutdown ritual at the end of the day before I check that shutdown complete box on my time block planner. I will want to process that working memory file down to nothing. And so if there's even very short tasks on there I didn't finish, now they're probably going to have to go on a Trello card or on a to-do list. Maybe I'll put a bunch of them together on one card. and It'll just be like 15-minute push I need to do soon. And it goes into the system. I don't know why it makes it easier to have this stuff written down on a separate text file, but it really does because it, you clear your inbox, you specify and clarify what the actual tasks are in that inbox. The ability just to see them written plainly, you can move them around and erase them once you've done it. It's just much easier to deal with. So that's my suggestion, Tyler. When you're trying to actually process your inbox, process, 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 Anything you can't do in the moment, put it into that text file and still get rid of that email. You do not want to use your inbox as a place for long-term storage of tasks. It is terrible at that task. All right, let's do another question now that gets into some of these nitty-gritty details of managing work in a digital office. Hi, Cal. My name is Meg, and I'm an academic librarian at a university in Canada. I'm committed to starting a time blocking practice when I head back to work in the new year. As part of this new practice, I will put aside 30 minute 
um, 30 minutes for time block planning for the next day at the end of each workday. The problem arises with my Outlook calendar. All of my team members and I share our calendars openly with one another. My team members and I rely heavily on the scheduling assistant function in Outlook, which automates finding a time when all required attendees are available to meet. Sometimes I do get invited to same day meetings, which has become um, more common because of the remote work we're doing during pandemic. But the automatic scheduling tool only works if I block off not only my paper time blocking template for that day, but also block out my Outlook calendar. So do you recommend I fill up my Outlook calendar with time blocks or just decline same day meeting requests or something different altogether? How do I block time uh, for the next workday in a way that ensures I don't get booked into unexpected meetings? Thanks, Cal. Well, the short-term answer here is the deep work blocks on your time block plan, put those on your Outlook calendar as well so that the auto scheduling tool sees that time as taken up. You can't probably get away with putting your entire time block schedule on your calendar because there'll be no time free and your colleagues will be annoyed that you are what's holding up their attempts to schedule these meetings. So that's sort of a happy balance. Now, more generally speaking, there's a deeper problem with the people you work with and the underlying workflows that you deploy if you're constantly having to on-the-fly schedule meetings. I think it's common in a lot of knowledge work settings for people to use meetings as a proxy for productivity. Right? The thinking goes like this, something pops up onto your radar, like, oh yeah, we have uh, some compliance with a new state library regulation that's gonna be due soon. All right, what should we do about this? The easy way to get that off your mind is to say, well, let's just schedule a meeting because you know what? I might not trust myself to time block. I might not trust myself to follow a to-do list. I might not trust myself to follow a weekly plan, but most people will follow their calendar. If there's a meeting, they will go to it. And so the meeting becomes a proxy for more deeper productivity thinking. You say, hey, this is on my calendar. Now, when I get there, I'll just do that meeting and hopefully we'll make some progress when we get there. So as a way of taking things off of your mind and having reassurance they'll get dealt with, there's nothing easier than just having something on your calendar when you'll talk about it. This is not, however, the best way to deal with most things. I think in most contexts, a well-functioning knowledge work team should have regular and highly predictable check-in or status meetings. Here's what's going on. Who needs what? What are we working on? Two, they will have a really transparent way of keeping track of who is working on what and how it's going. And three, regularly occurring type of obligation work or project will have processes in place for getting them done that minimizes the need for lots of context shifting or meetings. All of that takes more work. All that's more of a pain up front than instead just saying in the moment, shoot, we have to do this compliance report. Hey, Outlook, auto schedule something. Now it's off my mind. But it allows people to be significantly more effective because you do not have your days constantly punctuated by unexpected and ad hoc meetings. There's not a lot of wasted back and forth. 
You don't have to sit down for an hour to talk about something and then nothing really gets done until the next meeting is scheduled. It really optimizes your resources. So, I mean, this is the picture I paint in a world without email, this picture where it's clear who's working on what. There's predictable communication protocols where you get together like at regular meetings. Okay, where are we? What do you need? Hey, this compliance thing fell on it. I'm going to assign it to you in our task system. Here's what it means. Maria, get this over to Karen by this time. We'll check in on that at the next status meeting along with these other things. The status meetings are very easy because you have all the tasks up here on some common shared board. You can see who's working on what and what you need to ask about. If compliance reports are something that happens a lot, you spend 20 minutes to figure out how do we want to do this? Oh, I see. Here's how it works. Everyone puts their information in this Dropbox by this time, and then it's up to this person to put into a preliminary report. You, you, you have a whole process in place. All this stuff is a little bit more of a pain up front, but it allows you, it enables a lot more return on your cognitive resources. In a world without email, I call this attention capital theory. We have to get more serious about how we get the best return from the attention capital that defines the main capital resource of knowledge work organizations. All right, so we have a short-term answer, which is put your deep work on your calendar so at least you have some protection and be flexible with the other administrative time knowing that you might lose it to a meeting at any point. We have the long-term answer, which is do the whole attention capital theory thing and completely remake the way your team operates. To give you a middle ground answer, in the short term, you might have an agreement with your team. Hey, let's keep all meetings in the afternoon, right? Uh, nothing before one. So at the very least, you know you have control over your time from the morning until one, and then your afternoon is a mix of administrative stuff and ad hoc meetings. And that's a little bit easier to deal with and a little bit less frustrating than any time on any day you could have a meeting. So that's a, that's a good middle ground that could buy you some breathing room. But long-term, you got to buy a world without email, buy a copy for all of your team, remake how you operate. Your work life could be so much better. All right, let's move away from the world of work slightly and get towards the digital minimalism world and try to tune up a habit here about excessive cell phone use. Hey, Cal. My name is Kalo. I'm a computer science PhD student at UC Berkeley. I'm having trouble kicking my cell phone habit. I've deleted my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all social media, but I find myself going on my phone a lot and browsing YouTube. And it just seems like no matter what I do, I somehow just unlock all the safeguards that I have on my phone. And it's really causing me a lot of distractions. Well, Kalo, there's two different things to recommend here. One is just how to be more effective in giving your brain experience not having constant distraction. You have to break this Pavlovian connection in which your brain associates boredom with distraction, boredom with distraction. That's a very strong connection right now. You're having a hard time breaking it. So a couple things you can do there is one, work away from your phone, like in a different location. You know, I'm at a coffee shop working. My phone is at home, that type of thing, where the amount of time for you to actually get up, walk, go get your phone uh, is prohibitive. A big enough level of friction that, that you actually are going to have to just work. These protections you're putting on your phone that can be disabled on your phone itself, that friction is not high enough. So, you know, uh, leave your phone at your dorm and go to the library. 
leave your phone at home and go to the coffee shop, etc. Leave your phone at home and go for a hike, right? Bring your algorithm's problem set with you into the woods. You're 20 minutes away from the nearest phone. Well, I guess I'll have to just go back to work. Outside of the context of actually trying to work, just do things on a regular basis without your phone. This is the whole concept of embracing boredom from deep work. This notion of being regularly exposed to situations in which you might be bored, but you have no way of actually dissipating that boredom digitally. This will all diminish your Pavlovian connection between boredom and digital distraction. So go for runs, exercise, hikes, whatever you need to do, long walks without your phone. It should just be a regular drumbeat. You work without your phone, you hike without your phone, you exercise without your phone. Your mind just learns. Sometimes I have my phone, great. Sometimes I don't, that's fine too. You gotta do that for a couple months, but you can diminish that instinct. That'll help. The second general category of fixes I wanna recommend here is digital minimalism. The whole idea of digital minimalism from my eponymous book of that same name is that it's typically not sufficient to just focus on what you're trying to reduce. It's generally not sufficient to say, I look at YouTube too much. I look at Twitter too much. It's causing harm. I want to look at it less. That is often not enough for sustainable change. What you need to do instead is focus on a positive that you're hoping to accomplish and then be focusing on satisfying that positive vision. So what I talk about in digital minimalism is that you develop through reflection and experimentation a vision of what you want to do with your life, what you value, what you want to spend your time doing, what type of person you want to be. You then work backwards from those positive answers to say, what is the best way to use technology to support these things I care about? So you're not just identifying what technologies you use, but because you know why now, why you're using those technologies, you can have very clear rules around how you use them. So if you're the artist who needs Instagram for creative inspiration, but you know that's why you're using Instagram, it's much easier to say, oh, I don't need this on my phone. I'll access it on my desktop. I'll type in my password manually. I'll do it twice a week. I'll treat it like a TV show, 30 minutes at a time. When you know why you're using the tool, what positive thing it's serving, you can optimize it. This really works, Kayla, when you're focusing on, I'm not, I don't use Twitter on my phone. I don't use Instagram on my phone because that's not part of my vision for the life I want. That's pretty sustainable because your mind is attracted to this idea of a good life, of accomplishing this life you want. And it will go through a lot. It will go through a lot of difficulty to achieve or get something it thinks is really important. On the other hand, if you're just saying, I use Twitter too much, I should use it less. I use Instagram too much. It's distracting me. I want to use Instagram just 30 minutes a day. That's not a very strong, that's not a very strong pushback. Your mind says we should use it less. I agree in general, but why not right now? Then you have to have that battle 20 times a day. You're going to lose it seven times. So that's my bigger picture answer. Kalo is to embrace digital minimalism. Start from scratch. This is what I want in my life. Here's how technology helps it. And then just make one commitment. I'm going to follow the rules I put in place to make my life better. Very powerful, much more sustainable. You're young. This is a perfect time to do it. You have a lot of potential. You have a lot of autonomy. You have a lot of energy. Now is the time to figure out what you want in your life. So my book, Digital Minimalism, it'll walk you through a 30-day process for trying to figure that out. I call it the digital declutter. 
You might also want to listen to some of the past Deep Questions podcast episodes where I talk about doing, uh, looking at the deep life in your buckets and the buckets that are important and overhauling your buckets. I've given various bits of advice in various episodes. It all gets you to kind of the same place. When you are moving towards something that you really want, you have a ton of willpower to spare. When you're trying to reduce something that you generally dislike, that alone is not a sustainable road. All right, so to summarize, the first big category is just get more hardcore about separating yourself from your phone so you can break that connection. Your mind gets comfortable with the idea that you don't always have your phone. And then two, deploy the deep life digital minimalism type strategy here of, of getting your act together and what you really want out of life. Put technology to use on your behalf. If you really believe in that vision, you will stick much more effectively to the restrictions that it entails. All right, let's move on now with a question about an interesting technique that I, I don't talk about a lot, but it's kind of a cool one. Hiring yourself as your own assistant. Let's figure out what I mean by that. Hi, Cal. I'm Sophie, a PhD student from South Korea. I want to ask about the strategy of hiring yourself as a personal assistant. My question is, what time is this assistant supposed to show up? Are these hours that you spend being your assistant outside the deep work hours? Are they outside the work hours? So let's say after 5.30. Or does this assistant show up even during the deep work hours? Well, I appreciate this question because it's kind of a deep cut. The idea of hiring yourself as your own assistant is something I've only mentioned in passing before. You know, of course, I like this question because it's a topic that, as you might have guessed, I get into in a lot of detail in a world without email. Safi had no way of knowing this, so it's just a well-timed question, but that means it's something I've thought a lot about more recently. Let me summarize the approach so that I can then answer this question. So the no notion of hiring yourself as your own assistant is a reaction to the reality today and knowledge work of diminishment of intellectual specialization. IT tools in particular have made it possible for us to, to put more and more administrative or support type work on individuals that traditionally might have had just one or two things that they did that created value for the organization. Maybe they had, there was a typing pool to type and a, a, an assistant to help with travel booking and this and that. And they focused on, I don't know, writing ad jingles or something like that. But, but IT has made it possible that we can get rid of the typing pool and get rid of the assistant. And it's just all on your plate. We have inboxes, you have email, you have some intranet interface for booking your travel this all seems great in the short term because you have fired a lot of people and saved a lot of salary, but we don't always take into account the reality that this puts a lot more work on the individuals that are supposed to actually be doing the things that create value for the company. Therefore, uh, they can do less of that. They create less value. That's not necessarily a fair trade. In fact, you can end up, you can end up actually losing money. You gain money from firing support staff, but you lose money because now your frontline workers get a lot less done. In the end, you have to produce a widget to sell it. And if you're producing less widgets because the widget makers are also booking their travel and writing emails, 
you sell less widgets, you make less money. All right, so one of my reactions to this reality is if you have these different roles you're playing, like administrative roles and frontline deep work, value creation roles, treat them as very separate roles. Treat it as if you have different jobs. I'm a part-time ad executive. I'm a part-time assistant to an ad executive. Treat them like different jobs. So when I say you hire yourself as your own assistant, I mean like you think about, I have this one job where I'm an assistant and I have this one job where I do my primary value creation activities. Keep the tasks separate. Keep the scheduling separate. You know, uh, here is all the stuff the assistant needs to do and what's on the assistant's plate. Here is all the stuff that me, the ad executive or whatever your main deep work producing job, here's all the stuff that this role needs to do. And when you schedule your day, you're basically figuring out like what portion of the day does this role get? Like what portion of the day does the administrative assistant get? What portion does the executive get? Now, this seems at first like it might just be purely semantic. All of these tasks you do, all these tasks you're storing. So what are you really gaining by pretending like it's two different jobs? The psychology is very important. A, it keeps the balance of deep to shallow reasonable because now you're very unlikely to say, huh, let me take the deep work role and give it no time. Like, what's the point? I don't want my administrative role to have all the day. They both are part-time jobs. The administrative assistant can get two hours of the day and this get six hours of the day or whatever you want to do, but you're going to keep that much more equitable. Uh, you're more likely to say, look, if I'm really overloaded with logistical administrative stuff, well, my administrative assistant role during his hours are going to have a lot to do and might fall behind on things, but that work happens during these hours and these other hours, the deep work still happens unencumbered, right? So you're, you're much less likely to let administrative creep or overload stop you from doing anything valuable. It also just gives you a psychological relief right? Just to know when you're in your deep work mode, you have this clear vision of I'm working on this, then this, and then this. And this requires I talk to this team and set a meeting for brainstorming. I need to put in a long walk to think about this jingle. And it's simple and it's clear. When you're doing that work, you shift into the mindset of that role and your mind is less encumbered and you get better stuff done. And then when you switch over to your administrative role, you're like, ah, I'm overloaded. This is crazy. And you can kind of be stressed while you're in that role, but it's contained. Again, this sounds semantic, but it really does have a psychological reality. It does make a difference. So Safi's question is, how much time should each role get? And where should that time come from? Well, the time should always come from your normal working hours. What you're doing here is treating both roles like a part-time job. And they should fit in with other within whatever working hours that you are expected or want to work. It might be frustrating because you're like, well, I... I I don't want to spend so much time as administrative assistant. I'm highly trained. I be, should be spending more time doing deep work. But this is the reality of your job. It's better to confront it. You can always talk to your boss about it. If you have a deep to shallow work ratio discussion, you can say, hey, it's taking me X hours a day to keep up with non-value producing work. Is that optimal? Maybe you want a better plan. But you don't want to escape from that reality by just mixing these two things together, by kind of doing deep work all day, but constantly distracting yourself by checking email and handling little tasks. It's not going to work as well. Now, how do you divvy up the hours within a given workday? You know, it kind of just depends on what your load is and what's going on. If there's a ton of administrative work going on, that administrative assistant role might have a lot of your hours. If you're coming up to a big deadline, on the other hand, then maybe that role gets a couple hours every other day. And everyone's just going to have to cope with it. 
make those decisions on the fly at the scale of the week. And you can recalibrate that and balance that as things change. All right. So that's what I would say. No, you don't do your assistant work before or after the day. It's part of your day. Just confront that reality. You don't get to just do deep work all day. You might as well be clear about what that split is. And by the way, these don't have to be like a, a binary thing. Like half the day is this and half the day is that. You could have two hours for one, two hours for the other, then back to two hours for the first. They can be somewhat interleaved. Uh, that's fine as well. Anyways, it's a it's a cool strategy. It's more than semantic. Psychologically does tend to make things much better. There's nice clarity to it. And so Safi, I hope you find that useful. Speaking of useful, how useful will you be to your family if you unexpectedly die? I know that's a somber topic, but it is an important one. If you do not have life insurance, it is going to be a problem if you leave this earth a little bit earlier than you expected. I talked about on Monday's episode about this big transition into all things adult I went through in 2012 when I had my first kid and bought my first house and it was a year after I bought my first car. And one of the big things I did during that transition was buy my first term life insurance policy. If you have a partner, if you have kids, you need life insurance as well. Good news, our sponsor Ladder makes that impressively fast and easy to do. You need just a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. No hidden fees. Cancel the policy any time. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Go to LadderLife dot com slash deep that's l-a-d-d-e-r life.com slash deep to find out if you're instantly approved for life insurance and how much it's going to cost go to ladderlife.com slash deep i also want to ask what are you eating these days if like me you live somewhere that's cold during February and only has outdoor dining available, you're probably not doing a lot of restaurant eating, which means you're probably cooking a lot and maybe getting bored of those same old recipes. This is where our sponsor Green Chef enters the scene. This is the first USDA certified organic meal kit company. You enjoy clean ingredients that you can trust and that are seasonally sourced for peak freshness, the ingredients are pre-measured, perfectly proportioned, and mostly prepped, so you can spend less time stressing and more time actually enjoying a delicious home-cooked meal that is really good for you. I mean, what Green Chef is known for is that they have these plans that fit various health-conscious lifestyles, so whether you're keto or paleo or vegan or vegetarian, there's a range of recipes that will suit exactly that way you like to eat. This is I can tell you this from experience, a great way to get better, cleaner ingredients, more interesting, more fun to make meals into your rotation during this period where we're all cooking more. So go to greenchef.com slash 90 deep. That's the number 90 in the word deep. And use the code 90 deep to get $90 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com 
chef.com slash 90 deep and use that code 90 deep to get $90 off if you can believe it and free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. All right, we have time for one more question here. Given how cold it is during the winter on the East Coast, I thought it'd be nice to do a question that looks forward to summer. Hello, Dr. Newport. My name is Karan. I'm a high school history teacher, and next semester, I'll be teaching two college courses in communication studies at a university. While I'm not afraid, and actually I'm excited to build my deep work muscles in the spring, I'm afraid that they will atrophy in the summer because I am not in a position where I have to work anymore. I have the summers off. So what can I do to make sure I keep my deep work muscles strong? Just like it's bad to stop going to the gym for three months. It would be bad if I don't do deep work during the summer. Well, Karan, this is a good problem to have. You know, having too much time off that you're worried about losing your edge. So first of all, congratulations for that. Uh, there's two things I would advise. One, you want to make sure that you do not lose structure and intention in your day-to-day. So being in the mental habit of I have some structure to how I spend my time and I'm intentional about how I use my time, that's really important. You can lose that feel relatively quickly. If you spend the summer just kind of winging it, well, I'm kind of watching TV. Let me go for a run. I'm looking at my, I lost an hour to my phone. Okay, maybe I'll go see a friend. I'm going to, uh, maybe I'll get out a book. Like if you're just sort of winging it, you get out of that habit of I have some structure and a plan for my day and I'm intentional about how I use my time. Now, this doesn't mean that your summer has to be a drag. It doesn't mean that you have to be time blocking in detail every minutes of your day. It doesn't mean you have to be working all the time. Like your, your summer can have plenty of really enjoyable things. Just be intentional about it. You know, here's my morning routine. You should probably have a morning routine. I can go do something fun, but I Put it put aside ahead of time I'm doing something fun, okay? Then I'm going to do something productive around the house. Then I'm going to see a friend. And then I've given myself 30 minutes of just messing around on the phone time. And then I'm reading a book. And then it's the evening. Whatever you want to do. Like, it's not, not, doesn't have to be boring. Doesn't have to be tedious. But just have some structure to your day and have some intention about what you're doing. If you want to relax, if you want to have fun, uh, that's fine. Just kind of plan out what that is when you want to do it. Don't be haphazard about it, right? So your mind keeps keeps this habit of we specify what we do. We don't let things just unfold. Uh, two, I don't think you need to be super taxing your brain during the summer. You're not going to get super dumb, like in the way that maybe a particular muscle might atrophy if you're not working it out every day. But you want to have some minimum intellectual engagement. A reading habit is probably the best thing. A particular, particular sequence of books that you want to read and master Really, if you want to be particularly sharp, like really keep that edge, maybe have a, a book of like philosophy or a famous history book that's not approachable by itself for you. And so you also have to like do a course on it, like an online course or buy a book, like a guide to the book, a guide to the author, a summary, and then you kind of work through the book with the help of a course or a supplementary secondary source or something like this. That's great. Taking something that's a little bit too hard for you that you then learn what you need to to actually digest it, to have like a project like that going on all summer. So it could be a sequence of books that you learn. Uh, that'll really help keep you sharp, but don't, you know, you don't need overkill here. 
you don't need to uh, uh, write a book or you can, obviously you don't need to, you don't need to take seven online courses. You can, but you don't need to, like, you're not going to get super dumb, but it's good to have at least some intellectual challenge just so you get used to what that feels like, or at least you don't lose the feel of what it's like to be pushing your brain. All right. So don't sweat it. Just have a little bit of structure. Keep intention about how you spend your time. Be intentional even about relaxation so you get the best relaxation or really effective relaxation and maybe have at least one autonomous, light touch, but not very easy intellectual challenge like learning a hard book that you can't learn without extra help. That'll give you a good sense of accomplishment, help keep you in the habit of what deep work actually feels like and otherwise just enjoy the summer, enjoy the warm weather, enjoy what we all hope is the last dying gasp of this pandemic and then hit the ground running when fall comes. Well, speaking of hitting the ground running, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you for the questions. Go to calnewport.com slash podcast to learn more about how to submit your own questions. I keep mentioning my book, A World Without Email. Well, that's because it's coming out in March and you will like it. So please check that out. We will be back on Monday the next full-length episode of the Deep Questions podcast. And until then, as always, stay deep.